Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Coffee Chat with Camille. Um, I'm still enjoying Dunkin' Donuts coffee. And uh, I'm adding an actually original creamer. It isn't the powdered, it's liquid. And when I say original, it means it has no flavor. I usually love hazelnut or French vanilla. But sometimes folks in your life forget what you really, really like in your coffee, if anything at all. Today, our special guest is Daniel Terade. He's the co-host of The Red Review, a Marxist scientist, and a revolutionary socialist. Okay, so I'm going to let him in right now. One moment, everyone. Hi, Daniel. Welcome. Yeah, hey, Camille. Great to hear from you. Hi. Yes, great to hear from you as well. Um, I want to, oh, first of all, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well today. How's everything going out there on the West Coast? (laughs) It's going really good. Um, I want to get right into our topic because you are, in fact, my very first socialist I've ever had on, Marxist, scientist, politician. Yes. Yes, you're my first one. So this is very exciting uh, for me and I'm sure for my audience as well because I did do a trailer of the show prior to today. So my first question is, what is socialism, Daniel? Probably a good place to start. And obviously you have a lot of competing (laughs) definitions and things floating around, some from sources that are very hostile to the idea and some that are very conflated with different historical ideas. For me, quite simply, socialism is a form of economic organization where instead of the means of production, fancy word for the factories, places of work, anything that can be used to produce or make something, rather than that being owned by a small number of people in private hands, which we would call capitalists, socialists would instead demand under socialism that those means of production be owned collectively, democratically run by the workers who are themselves working in those conditions. That was, mm-hmm. I think, probably a good place to start. Thank you very much. And then what is the uh, difference, I guess, between socialism and capitalism? Exactly. So it's a, it's a historical progression under capitalism. Again, what we see right now in the vast majority of the world, capitalism yeah. is what someone like Bernie Sanders would call, you know, rule by the 1%. Yes. That's slightly mm-hmm. imprecise because it's not so much about the wealthiest whatever tier of society, it's specifically the people who own certain parts of society. And so you belong to a capitalist class if you're the person that owns the means of production, if you own part of it. So Jeff Bezos is a capitalist. Bill Gates is a capitalist. Capitalism, then, is a system in which capitalists exist as the dominant force in society. They are the highest class in society, And then below the capitalist class, you have the small capitalists, the petty bourgeoisie. Those could be your professionals who get paid six-figure salaries. They don't necessarily own the means of production, but their place in society is more privileged than the bulk of people, which would be the workers and other lower oppressed classes. So capitalism, again, is private ownership of the means of production. It's an economic system in which the capitalist class is privileged. They have 
the most influence, they have the most power, they have the most wealth. And then compared to socialism, what you would essentially be doing is removing that entire upper class. The capitalist class would be abolished and instead ownership of the most important things in society, land, factories, places of work, productive capacity, that would be passed to the larger class of workers, of the people who actually do the work to produce things. Excellent. Thank you so much. And then what is a Marxist? See, so now you're really getting, so socialism predates Marxism. Uh, Socialism (laughs) as an idea has been championed in various uh, chains or in various trends throughout history. Before the Marxists, you had a a movement of Christian socialists who their interpretation of Christianity and the Bible, they thought was incompatible with capitalist domination. You know, they were like Jesus throwing the money lenders out of the temple. They thought that, no, that's just immoral. That's against God's wishes. Marxism is a different framework for socialism. Some of the ideas could be very similar in terms of the end goal, but the underlying uh, impetus for socialism is somewhat different. Marxism, uh, it draws from a material perspective, a material history, and this gets somewhat complicated to sum up in a, in a relatively short podcast episode, but Marxism really tries to look at the, uh, of, looks at history as a class war. Uh, it defines the biggest driver of, of progress and of development in history as being the antagonism between different classes. Before capitalism, you had the contradictions and conflict between the land-owning aristocracy and the, and the serfs and peasants in the countryside. And those two classes had mutually different needs and desires. What was good for one class was bad for the other and vice versa. Same thing with capitalists and workers. What's good for the capitalists is bad for the worker and vice versa. So Marxists look at history through the lens of this material lens. You know, when workers get more and more starved of wages, when their pensions get cut, when their environments get polluted, they are pushed towards a different way of thinking. So a Marxist sees socialism as the necessary outcome of the struggle between capitalists and workers, how as Mm -hmm. capitalists themselves, they further impoverish workers, which drives workers to organize with each other for their collective interests. And so it tries to develop an idea of socialism that is scientific, where you can start generalizing some of the trends and ideas rather than appealing to a moral basis for socialism, which would uh, okay. be the tradition of Christian socialism. So, Marx, I mean, and it's going to be, if you ask 100 Marxists for a precise definition of Marxism, you might get 100 different answers. So I'm going to try and keep it uh-huh. at a very high level uh, to kind of describe you know, the context in which this uh, emerged from, because we're now 150 years past when the Communist Manifesto was written by Marx and Engels. And since then, you've had a lot of different influential leaders and uh, academics and organizers take those ideas and adapt them to the present context. So you have a lot of different flavors of it as well. Okay, excellent. And then is capitalism necessary for technological advance? No, it's not. Good question. But it's entirely not. And I mean, just to say that, you know, whether it's better or worse, let's put that to the side. Is it necessary? Absolutely not. Capitalism as an economic system dates back to about the, uh, you know, emerged out of England, 14, 15, 1600s. 
So obviously there are massive technological advances in human history that predated capitalism. Capitalism is not necessary for scientific tech, uh, advancement. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had the development of algebra. We wouldn't have had the invention of gunpowder. We wouldn't have had, you know, the accurate assessment of the diameter of the earth. All these things pre uh, predated capitalism. And even since the inception of capitalism, we still to this day see so much innovation that takes place outside of capitalism. So to return to the definition of capitalism as the private means of production, the normal argument goes something like this. Only if you have people motivated by greed, by profit accumulation from their investments, will you get any desire for things to be innovated. The argument really I find is quite offensive to me as a scientist who has innovated many things without ever needing to collect profit from the work of other people. You know, I think most humans, if you give them the opportunity and they have the inclination and the curiosity, people innovate practically on a day-to-day -day basis. You see huge communities of programmers who develop free and open source programs and platforms that are entirely free for other people to use. They put it in out of the, not the goodness of the heart per se, but out of a drive for community, out of a drive to create something with other people to test their abilities, to advance their abilities, and to create something that other people would benefit from. I, I want to maybe summarize this by a very classic example from where I'm from, not only as a scientist, but I live in Toronto. Insulin was first discovered, created, purified, and administered to patients in Toronto. It was not developed under a capitalist framework at all. It was developed at a publicly owned institution, the University of Toronto. They patented it but not, they planned it specifically so people couldn't exploit it. They sold the patents to the university for a dollar, these three scientists, and they then produced and uh, sold insulin at cost. So as a patient, you have to spend zero dollars for insulin. The government would basically pay the workers and cover all the costs to produce insulin, and it was treated like a public good. So this was undoubtedly innovation. The discovery and purification of insulin has saved millions of lives, and yet none of the people that did it did so to get rich. None of them got rich off of it. And yes. what has changed since, though, as we've you know, kind of descended more into what some would call late-stage capitalism, now we have a monopoly of three pharmaceutical companies that own insulin. They own the intellectual property rights to insulin. And now that's why you see insulin has exploded in price, where now they're charging you know, $1,000 a month for access to the same product. The only thing that's changed is not the technology so much, not the workers and what they're contributing, but rather than it being publicly owned and treated as a human good, it's now privately owned and treated as a commodity. So profit is not necessary for innovation. Humans innovate to solve problems. The only thing that profit does is it means that what we innovate is dictated by people whose only concern is profit. There's tons of innovation under capitalism, but the innovation is profit accumulation. That's why Apple is so innovative, but their innovation isn't necessarily better or cheaper products, but rather, rather products that break so often that they can sell more products. That's innovation for them because they make more money. Yet for us, that's yes. not innovation at all because we suffer. So I think that's a myth that needs to be dispelled with. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. And then, what must be done to tackle the climate crisis? That's, that's a big question, and it's obviously not something that any one person 
has all the answers for. There's another, I was mentioning earlier, there's different flavors of socialism. There's another term that maybe you've come across, but it's starting to come more in vogue, the term of eco-socialism. And this recognizes that under capitalism, there are two things that are being exploited. Workers are being exploited. If you're getting paid as an Amazon worker by Jeff Bezos, $15 an hour, but the value of the work you're doing, your ability to do labor is generating $30 an hour in wealth for the company, you're being exploited by $15 an hour. It's not being valued appropriately because Bezos as a middleman is taking that excess money. But there's another thing that's also exploited under capitalism, and that's the environment. Mm. It's as a commodity and as something that can be owned by individuals with the only idea in their head being, how do I take this natural environment and make money from it? Under capitalism, a forest only has value if you cut it down and you sell the wood as, as lumber. It has no innate value under capitalism for the wonderful things it does for the environment, for the fact that it is a forest. Profit's the only thing that comes into consideration. And so in that way, you can take what's happened under capitalism the last four or 500 years, the incredible uh, increase in rate of extraction of fossil fuels and burning of fossil fuels, What's driven that is incredible profits to be had, and yet the vast majority of people on the planet actually don't really benefit from this because we don't see that extra wealth. We don't see the profits of it. We suffer the negative consequences of it, which is the increase in pollution, water that's no longer healthy to drink, air that's no longer healthy to breathe. So not only do we need a system where workers can collectively control their place of work, and make decisions that are good for them as workers and as a community. But the land, the environment needs to be collectively stewarded by the people. And that's the only way we can actually live in harmony with nature. I think if you took a neighborhood and you put it to a vote for the entire neighborhood, should we cut down all the trees in our neighborhood because we can sell the trees and make a buck right now? They would say no, because in the long run, we'll be worse without the trees. But if one person owns all the trees, They might say, yes, I don't care if in the future it's not going to be so bad. I made all the monies from selling the trees today that I'll just be able to buy something in the future to remedy this. That's how the capitalists think about this problem. They're already building bunkers in the mountains to prepare for the climate apocalypse. They're literally in the Rocky Mountains and in New Zealand. They're already preparing to hunker down for the man-made crisis that they played a part in and that they could prevent, but they won't, because the only thing that drives them today is maximizing the rate of profit, which means burning as much oil today, even if it means it's going to cause negative outcomes in the future. The only way around that is if we bring nature and land back to community, back to the collective, because only then do the decisions we collectively make actually reflect our deep, deep need to live in harmony with nature. Got it. And do you think that there's still enough time to do that? Yes, for us to, and the answer okay. has to be yes, because anything else is just defeatist. But it's not easy. Mm-hmm. It, it's not easy. I mean, you already okay. have NASA climate scientists who are gluing themselves to, to oil refinery machinery, and that should be ringing alarm bells for everybody. NASA scientists have to be amongst the people that are most knowledgeable about the extent to which the you know global environment and ecosystems have been disrupted. And they're taking huge, huge risks their personal careers to basically as desperately as possible try and bring attention to this 
So we know it's bad. We hear the report saying that by 2030, we need to already be, you know, 60% cut to the, uh, you know, emissions levels that we saw pre-industrially. I mean, not pre-industrially, like 2000. Like, we need to cut back quickly. And the scary thing is, like, the trends aren't there. Like, it's actually still increasing the amount of uh, emissions. We're still going in the wrong direction. But as we get further along in the decay of our environment and ecosystems, the material perspective as a Marxist, we know that's going to lead to greater disillusionment with the system itself. We know that as things get worse, people will wake up more and more. They'll organize more and more. The only thing that's really holding us back is unity of the working and oppressed classes. Right now, most workers and uh, you know, other oppressed people in society, you know, uh, racialized minorities, uh, gender minorities, uh, migrants, especially people living in super exploited countries in the global south, we're not united. We're constantly divided up by various culture wars. You know, you have mm-hmm. some people that, you know, think that fossil fuels are good for workers because that's where our jobs are coming from now. And they ignore the fact that really we need work, we need jobs. It doesn't need to be this job. And in fact, the jobs that are destroying the planet are not the jobs that we need. We need jobs that allow us to live you know, in harmony with nature. And so we need to be able to unite on a common vision of collective ownership that will work for the masses. But that's challenging. That, you know, then you get problems of leadership. You get, you get tons of problems. And the fact is capital protects itself. All the people that have money and fossil fuels, none of them want to give up that incredible, incredible wealth and privilege that they have by being, yeah. you know, one of the big shareholders of Shell. And so they spend so much money on disinformation to try and divide up working class people, to make working people think that this system of fossil fuel extraction is somehow good for them, even though it's the very system that's threatening all of us. So it's difficult work, but we see it already building up. It was in 2019 in, in Canada that we had the biggest ever climate mobilizations. There were half a million people marching in Montreal. The issue is not so much the desire for change. I think we're already at the point where the vast majority of people recognize that this is an existential threat. The issue is all the places we'd normally look to for leadership, we're not finding it. You know, the politicians in charge in in the United States and Canada are beholden to the fossil fuel lobby. The, you know, fossil fuel lobby is the biggest donors to all these political campaigns. They sit in parliament. They are all these lobbyists. And so it's going to take a big movement for us to overcome the fact that all the most wealthy people in our society, all the most powerful people in society are united against us. So we, as the working and oppressed masses, the 99% of people, need to unite against them. They already recognize we're in a class war. It's time for us to also recognize we're in a class war because it's not too late. If we were, for example, hypothetically, revolution you know, completed within three years, if by 2025, the workers were in charge of their factories, their places of work, if communities were in charge of their local environments, their local parks and forests, and they had a direct say as the people living in that community, we can immediately put an end to the most environmentally damaging practices. We can immediately start stewarding the land, healing the land, reconnecting with the land. There's nothing stopping us except the economic system we live in. And that's going to be the big hurdle that we have to overcome is recognizing that the economic system itself is a barrier to living in harmony with nature and then realizing that that's going to take radical, radical action to overcome it.
Okay, that's excellent. Thank you so much. And then what is the difference between socialism and anarchism? Oh, yeah, great question. So socialism and anarchism both agree on what the final goal of our struggle is. And that would actually be described as communism. So communism would be, you know, the, you know, ideal utopian final state. Communism is the abolishment of private ownership. No longer can one person own a lake. No longer can one person own a forest. No longer can one person own the factory where a thousand people work. All of these things would be collectively owned by the people that live there, by the people that work there. You can still have personal property. You can still have your own home. You can still have your own items, but you can't own anything that you can then use to make money from other people. Because the things that other people rely on, the things that you rely on, the things that the whole community relies on, those are the, the things that would be collectively owned if we all need it, if we all rely on it. The things that are personal, those are just your own items, and that's fine. So both anarchists and socialists would agree that the state, the capitalist state, the private ownership, all that needs to go. Because communism is not just the abolishment of private ownership. It actually, by its own definition, if you to the Communist Manifesto, it's the abolition of the state. They see any form of hierarchy as being wrong, that fundamentally we need to live cooperative caste system or in some hierarchy where some people work less and make more and other people work harder and make less. So both agree, you know, the state has to go, hierarchy has to go, private ownership has to go. We have to return to cooperative communal type of living. We need to, you know, live with each other. The difference then between socialism and anarchism is not their, you know, final vision, but how do we get there? Socialists think that as workers, as exploited workers that comprise about 60 to 70 percent of society, we need to first take control of the state apparatus and use it for our own benefit right now. And we need to take control of the state, we need to take control of the means of production and put it to work for the masses. And that as we do this, we can then transition to communism. Anarchists have, in my, in my viewpoint, a more idealistic view. They try to immediately jump to communism from capitalism. They basically try to either create their own uh, a-hierarchical communities. They try and create their own communities without hierarchy right now in small parts. And they try to basically carve out small parts out of capitalism. They might create a commune on a farm somewhere where the people living on the commune live according to communistic principles. And again, maybe that intentionally shows the point. Communism, communes, community, that's the fundamental idea behind communism is, again, living together, sharing the work, sharing the responsibilities, sharing the obligations. No one person gets rich while other people get left behind. So socialists think we have to first take control of the state and move to communism. Anarchists try to get directly there. And that, for example, in the United States, you had the big movement about 10 years ago, Occupy Wall Street. That was an anarchist movement, control of the parks. And they were saying, this is our commune. This is where we're going to build our ideal society. Why I think anarchism then is kind of idealistic is because it, it thinks that if we just start forming our own society now, that the main society will just let us do that. And what we saw with Occupy Wall Street is, of course, they won't do that. The capitalists absolutely will defend their system that they benefit from. And so what we saw is a bunch of police going into the parks to beat up and arrest all these anarchists. And we see that yes. over and over again. So it's a bit idealistic to think that you can just kind of ignore capitalism and then make your own 
state or, or whatever, not state, I guess, in the situation of anarchists, but create your own communities without some sort of backlash. The socialists recognize that, and we say, okay, if the state is going to try and attack us, which it does all the time, we'll take control of the state first before dismantling it. Okay. Okay. Got it. Thank you. And then if you don't trust pharmaceutical companies, why do you trust the vaccine? Another great question, Camille. I'm loving these. So that (laughs) question, again, could be answered from, again, a a framework of socialism. So I don't trust pharmaceutical companies. I don't know if you're saying that as a rhetorical question or if you've seen some of my writing, but I don't. I, of course, don't because the pharmaceutical company, the CEOs and the shareholders – their only concern, their only concern is profit. And that's mm. not something I'm just yes. saying. It's what they say. And in fact, if they're a publicly traded company with shareholders, it's actually legally their obligation to maximize profits. Their fiduciary responsibility is to make as much return for their investors possible. If they don't do that, they can get sued by their shareholders. So that would mean if tomorrow Eli Lilly, Novo Nordisk, or uh, Sanofi, these are the three companies that monopolize the insulin industry. They're an oligopoly, technically. There's three of them, but they collude with each other. They fix the price of insulin by coordinating their prices so that you can't just get a cheaper price somewhere else. If they decide tomorrow to lower their price of insulin, they can get sued by their shareholders because that would mean they would get less returns on their investments. So I don't trust the pharmaceutical industry because their own logic dictates that they will do things not that are good for patients, not that is good for science, not that's good for the world, but things that are good for their shareholders as much profit as possible. That being said, the product of pharmacy, so the for-profit motive is going to dictate pricing, distribution, it's going to determine patents and intellectual property, and it's going to determine what they try and develop and what they don't develop. The the for-profit pharmaceutical industry will never develop a medication that they don't think they will get a huge return on investment for, which is why pharmaceutical companies, by and large, ignore developing new antibiotics, because antibiotics are less profitable as a medication than developing some new Viagra medication or developing some new cholesterol medication. Vaccines, then, same thing, generally get ignored by for-profit pharmaceutical companies because a one-time or a two-time vaccine uh, you know, shot is going to cost less for the consumer than a lifetime of cholesterol medication. But whatever pharmaceutical companies eventually do produce, they're not being produced by the CEOs or the shareholders. That's being produced by the workers, by the scientists, the working class scientists who work in those factories. And those workers do not benefit by ripping off the patients. They don't benefit by colluding with their bosses to sell some fraudulent formulation or something that's going to hurt scientists. I'm a scientist. I, I work with scientists that are, and I have friends that are scientists that are in pharmaceutical companies and all these places. They do their work as best as they can. And so what gets produced by pharmaceutical companies is produced by the workers. And I trust the workers. Because if the workers were somehow colluding in something, the vaccine was meant as population control or was meant to track people, that would mean you have like literally tens of thousands of working class scientists all in on some huge conspiracy that they don't benefit from. (laughs) They get paid a salary. They get paid to do their work and they get paid to do it as well as they can. And most scientists, like most workers, try and take as much pride in their work as they can and they try and do a reasonable job. So what they produce 
I trust. I don't trust the system because we can see evidence all around us that that system doesn't work for humanity at large. It doesn't work for humanity yeah. when for-profit pharmaceutical companies uh, uphold international patents on their vaccines, which means that low-income countries around the world can't access vaccines. To this day, there are still low-income countries around the world that can't afford the vaccines because they're bidding against wealthier countries. And the only reason they can't make their own vaccine is because Pfizer and Moderna and these other pharmaceutical companies are refusing to share their recipes with them because if they shared their recipe with them, they would make less profit. That's what I don't trust because that system of vaccine apartheid where some people get access to vaccines and some don't means that some parts of the world are going to have more infections than other parts of the world. The places in the world that have more infections are going to have new variants emerging that are going to hurt us. So I don't trust the pharmaceutical company, but the vaccine itself isn't made by the CEO or the shareholders. It's made by the workers. That's why I trust it. Wonderful. Wonder. Oh, wow. This is very informative. Um, thank you so, so much, Daniel, for being my guest today. And um, before you go, may I just ask what your favorite coffee or hot beverage is? Absolutely. And so I've listened to a few episodes. I knew to expect this, and I made a coffee before this call. <laughs> I like making myself a latte at home with oat milk, yes. oat milk latte. That's my favorite. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. I'm so, so very thankful to you. And I appreciate, no, I appreciate all your knowledge. Oh, yeah, it was it was absolutely my pleasure. And I am going to say goodbye for now. And I hope to have you on another season, season three or four. Because oh, I feel like we didn't get enough time. Okay, I will. <laughs> There's Thank a lot you. there, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you so much, Daniel. Bye for now. Yeah, take care, Camille. You too. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> it was amazing. Okay. Wow. Thank you so much. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.